Given the immense amount of shipping sunk by submarines during the Second World War, it is incredible to remind ourselves that as of mid-2021, only three ships have been sunk in combat by a submarine since 1945. Meanwhile, numerous old vessels have been expended as targets to help hone the skills of submarine crews should they ever be called upon to wage their undersea war again. However, between the modern history of training and actual combat sits an unusual event that occurred in 1967 when a British submarine was ordered to remove a rather unexpected threat to ships out in the Atlantic Ocean using weapons designed for war. This is the story of the torpedoing of the tanker Esperger Chemist when the Royal Navy sank half a ship. Welcome to Wars of the World. The Esperger Company and its fleet of liquid tankers can trace its history back to 1924, when a former Imperial German Navy officer named John T. Esperger founded his own shipping company, employing many former German naval officers who, like him, were now out of work given the harsh limitations imposed on the German Navy after the First World War. The company quickly built a name for itself as one of the most professional tanker companies in Europe exporting chemicals across the Atlantic and beyond. During the Second World War, the company expanded to include conventional freighter tanks, what the Esperger company referred to as dry goods, in support of Hitler's Nazi Germany. Unfortunately for John T. Esperger and his people, the war was a disaster for his fleet, with it being decimated by attacks from Allied aircraft and submarines. But Esperger was not done just yet. Using his pre-war reputation for reliability and professionalism, in the late 1950s, he secured the financial backing necessary to begin rebuilding the Esperger fleet of tankers. One of the first ships of this second-generation Esperger fleet was the Wilhelmine Esperger, completed in 1954 and configured for carrying various chemical cargoes between Europe and North America. Ten years later, in 1964, the nearly 13,000-ton vessel was renamed, becoming the Esberger Chemist. On June 2nd, 1967, the ship, with its 46-man crew, was sailing approximately 90 miles south of the Azores in the Atlantic Ocean with a cargo of aceton and ethanol, which they were delivering from Texas to Rotterdam. Their time at sea had thus far proven relatively routine, and that day had included mundane chores, such as painting parts of the ship that were looking a little weathered. Later in the day, most of the crew, save for the few on watch, arrived in the ship's galley for their afternoon meal. And that is when it happened. The ship was rocked by a mighty explosion, followed by alarms signaling them into action. Arriving up on deck, the crew were horrified to find the deck ablaze, and where the hull had once been, there was now a gaping hole that was getting bigger. The blast from within the ship's hull had been so powerful 
that it had cut the tanker into two pieces, and it was only thanks to most of the crew being in the galley at the time that no one was killed. There was little time to figure out what had happened, and with the threat of further explosions, a distress signal was transmitted, sending a handful of nearby ships into the area to rescue the crew. However, further explosions failed to materialize, and the compartmented design of the ship meant that despite the extraordinary damage, the separated sections remained afloat, with the flooding being contained to only the damaged areas around which the blast had occurred. On June 5th, lines were attached to the aft section of the ship, which was then dragged to Punta Delgada in the Azores, before being transported onwards to Greece, where it was broken up and sold for scrap. That, of course, left the forward half of the ship bobbing around in the ocean, with its cargo of an estimated 1,700 tons of chemicals. On June 8th, it was sighted floating toward the Azores, which caused alarm with the local and international authorities, for the area was a busy shipping route between Europe and North America, and the fear was that it could collide with any number of other vessels, creating an even bigger disaster, especially if it collided with another tanker or passenger vessel. A similar salvage effort to that undertaken with the aft section of the ship was thus put into place, but there was a problem. Authorities in the Azores decided that they weren't going to permit the forward half of the ship to be towed to the archipelago, citing safety concerns over the soundness of the hull's integrity. They feared that if it broke up near their islands, it could result in a major environmental disaster if the chemicals escaped and washed up on shore. And at that time, the world was acutely aware of the damage from such incidents. Less than three months earlier, the tanker Tory Canyon had run aground near the Scilly Isles off the southwest coast of England, spilling somewhere in the region of 25 to 36 million gallons of crude oil in the sea. As arguments raged over what to do, the managing board at Esperger decided enough was enough. If they couldn't salvage it, then it was going to have to be sunk, and so they put a call in to London to ask for help in that regard. In almost every navy, there are names for warships that have a little more meaning than most, and in the Royal Navy, one of the most revered names is Dreadnought. By 1967, 10 warships had served the British and English fleets while carrying this name. A Dreadnought had defended England against the Spanish Armada in 1588, while another Dreadnought had fought at the pivotal Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. But it was the Dreadnought launched in 1906 that the name has since become most associated with. That Dreadnought ushered in a whole new era of naval technology and warfare, being the first all-big-gun battleship ever built, and at the time of its commissioning, it rendered every other battleship that came before obsolete. So influential was this one ship that the generic term of Dreadnoughts was used to describe the ships that followed its lead, and it was in this same spirit of innovation that the next HMS Dreadnought was launched. On June 12, 1959, work began on yet another new revolutionary warship for the Royal Navy. Only this time, rather than being a mighty battleship, it was instead a submarine. But more than that, it was to be Britain's first nuclear submarine. 
British engineers had toyed with the idea of a nuclear-powered submarine ever since the end of the war, but found the challenge insurmountable in the immediate post-war era. After the United States Navy launched the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, in 1955 the UK looked to take advantage of its special relationship with Washington and began negotiating for the transfer of American reactor technology to Britain for the Royal Navy to have its own nuclear submarine fleet. Despite some opposition from US Navy admirals, ultimately it was decided by Washington that it was better to have the Royal Navy fielding a force of nuclear-powered attack submarines to help them counter the ever-growing threats of the Soviet nuclear fleet. Thus, the technology transfer was authorized, and British engineers began designing and building a new submarine around the American S-5W reactor design, state-of-the-art in 1959. Launched symbolically on Trafalgar Day, 1960, by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the new warship offered to revolutionize the Royal Navy's sub-based hunter-killer operations and give them an almost unbeatable new weapon. There could only be one name that was appropriate. Commissioned into service on April 17, 1963, HMS Dreadnought would teach the Royal Navy many important lessons about nuclear submarine operations, and its first few years of service were extremely busy. Demonstrating the significant advantages in range and endurance nuclear power offered, it made numerous crossings of the Atlantic, visiting the US Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia, and sailing to the island of Bermuda all while breaking numerous British records for underwater cruising made by the previous diesel-electric subs. On June 8, 1967, HMS Dreadnought slipped out of the Fastlane Naval Base on the River Clyde in Scotland before heading south, running training drills and conducting exercises before putting in the British territory of Gibraltar on the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula. The arrival of Britain's first nuclear submarine to Gibraltar did much to antagonize the Spanish at a critical time in Anglo-Spanish relations, concerning the territory known as the Rock, for the local population was preparing for a referendum later in the year on whether they wished to remain British or become Spanish. The referendum was a foregone conclusion and the crew of the Dreadnought were treated to a wave of flags and banners, all proclaiming that the Rock was British and it was going to stay that way. On the evening of June 21st, 1967, compared to the tempo of the training that had been conducted at sea, HMS Dreadnought was relatively quiet as it was moored up in port at Gibraltar. The submarine's sonar, which it uses to detect enemy vessels, was inoperative, being under repair, as were the salt water cooling pumps, which were used to control the reactor's temperature while underway at sea. Much of the crew were on leave, enjoying the local bars and clubs before they had to return to the dark and narrow world of the Dreadnought's interior. Even the captain, Commander Peter Cobb, had left the sub in Gibraltar to head across the Mediterranean to Tangiers. Given the condition of Dreadnought that evening, it becomes easier to understand how flabbergasted the duty officer, one Lieutenant Higgins, must have felt when he received a call from Flag Officer Gibraltar Rear Admiral Michael F. Fell, asking how soon the sub could be made ready to depart. Higgins responded with a nominal estimation of 24 hours, and it was then 
that he was made aware of the situation regarding the floating hulk of the Esperger chemist's forward section, and that Dreadnought was about to be tasked with sinking it. Almost immediately, Dreadnought became abuzz with activity, as the crew were recalled and then scrambled to get the sub ready to depart. Rather than the initial estimate of 24 hours, the sub was worked up in around half that time, and by mid-morning the next day, Dreadnought was ready to sail. Commander Cobb arrived back at the sub less than 15 minutes before it slipped away from its moorings in Gibraltar, as did the senior technical officer who had flown in from a meeting in the UK. Dreadnought departed the rock at around 1000 hours, and once it was in deep enough water, dived and began charging towards the Azores at a rate of 30 knots, an extraordinary speed for a submarine at the time. But Dreadnought was not the only British military asset to be committed to the task of neutralizing the threats from what remained of the Esberg chemist. The Type 61 frigate HMS Salisbury was returning from several months in the Bahamas, chasing down smugglers and intercepting vessels carrying illegal immigrants when it was tasked to support Dreadnought in the operation. After refueling, Salisbury set off south towards the floating hulk, with instructions to act as a guard ship during Dreadnought's attack, keeping a lookout for any passing ship which may unintentionally stumble into the path of the submarine when it launched its torpedoes. Like Dreadnought, Salisbury reflected the newer, more technologically driven Royal Navy of the 60s. Designated as Air Direction Frigates, Salisbury's primary mission was to support the Royal Navy's carrier force by sailing beyond the range of the carrier group's radar coverage and using its own powerful radar to detect incoming Soviet maritime bombers like the Tupolev 216 and 295. Salisbury would then control fighters launched from British carriers to intercept them, and as such, its primary weapon system was its radar set. However, for defense, it did carry two 4.5-inch guns on the foredeck and two 40mm guns on the aft deck. The second supporting player to Dreadnought came in the shape of the Royal Air Force Coastal Command, who dispatched Avro Shackleton MR3 long-range maritime patrol aircraft to track the Hulk and assist Salisbury. The Shackleton came from the same stable as the wartime Lancaster, and at first glance, the lineage was clear, although they were fundamentally very different birds. Once Dreadnought was in firing position, they would then monitor the effectiveness of the nuclear submarine's torpedo attack. Dreadnought arrived on the scene on the morning of June 24th, after traveling over 1,000 miles from Gibraltar. The sub then surfaced in order to make visual and radio contact with Salisbury and the orbiting Shackleton before proceeding to circle its targets, gauging its size and apparent direction it was floating in. Once satisfied that his people had all the information they required, Commander Cobb ordered the Dreadnought submarine to prepare to attack. Slipping beneath the waves, Cobb positioned Dreadnought approximately one mile from his targets, while his crew readied four Mark VIII torpedoes. Compared to the complexity, modernity, and sophistication of Dreadnoughts, these weapons were quite literally of another time in warfare. The first Mark VIIs entered service in 1923 aboard diesel electric boats, whose underwater duration was measured in hours, and while the versions aboard Dreadnoughts were improved compared to those early models, it was still a 20-year-old weapon 
that many sailors felt was in great need of urgent replacement. However, for shooting a dead duck, they were ideal. In position, torpedo tubes loaded and flooded, and his target dead ahead, Cobb gave the order to fire. One at a time, the four Mark 8s were spat out of the Dreadnought's torpedo tubes, leaving the crew to wait patiently for the sound of an impact. Passing overhead, the crew on board the Shackleton spied faint white lines being drawn in the water by the torpedoes as they surged towards the target. Unfortunately, the first torpedo missed, however the following three each struck home, sending huge spires of water into the air as their 805-pound warheads detonated. However, the expected igniting of the chemicals on board failed to materialize. This would have obliterated the Hulk and eradicated the chemicals which would have helped mitigate the environmental impact of them being released into the ocean, but instead, the torpedoes blasted out the bulkheads, causing it to sink. Or at least, partially. Much to the astonishment of all, the forward half of what was once the complete ship known as the Esberger Chemist, despite having been involved in a massive internal explosion and then suffering three torpedoes slammed into it, still stubbornly refused to sink completely. Instead, it was now only partially submerged, and if anything, was an even greater threat to shipping, now being much more difficult to spot. Had the first torpedo found its target, then it was likely the whole thing would have gone down. But as it stood, the job was unfinished. It seemed a waste of another torpedo to sink this wreck, and so it was decided that a few shells from Salisbury's 4.5-inch guns might do the trick. Even then, it took several volleys of the shells before the charred and twisted hulk surrendered to the British attack. The high explosive shells from the Salisbury finally reached the chemical cargo, igniting it in a brilliant flash of red and orange fire before sending great big black clouds of smoke up into the air. The last piece of the Esberger chemist was destroyed, and it slipped beneath the waves to oblivion, allowing Dreadnought to return to Gibraltar and Salisbury to head home to Britain. The crews of Dreadnought and Salisbury were both congratulated by the higher-ups for a job well done, and then it was back to normal duties for both, with the submarine continuing its hectic life of training. That might have been the end of the story, were it not for the submarine pulling into Kiel in West Germany the following year, where they met the Esberger chemist's owner, Frau von Ranzau. Along with the company's managing director, Frau von Ranzau was welcomed aboard the submarine, and expressed her gratitude for their efforts by presenting the submarine with a silver gilt goblet as a trophy of their attack. And there you have the tale of the Royal Navy's first nuclear submarine sinking half a ship. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.